Health Matters with Karen Key. Professor Farid Saad is a world-renowned expert in men's health who's been involved over many years in large-scale clinical trials studying the effects of testosterone in males. Well, I wanted to speak with him this evening about testosterone and prostate cancer. Professor Saad, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening. There's been a lot of talk about testosterone and if it's safe in the long term, whether it can cause prostate cancer. What is coming out of research at the moment? Well, Actually, we're getting more and more comfortable with using testosterone in middle-aged to elderly men who have a certain risk, of course, because belonging to, a, to this age group exposes them to some risk of prostate cancer. We know how many patients within a given period of time would develop prostate cancer in a normal population. And now that we have increasing um, experience with using testosterone in this age group, we can uh, put things into perspective. And as I said, we are getting more comfortable. What exactly is testosterone deficiency syndrome? Because that is why people are taking testosterone, is for that. Well, testosterone deficiency is a um, phenomenon that seems to occur with advancing age. Testosterone levels seem to drop as men grow older. However, uh, as we thought this was a given during the last 10 or 15 years, we now seem to understand more about the background of why men lose testosterone. And one of the causes of testosterone deficiency is certainly the increase in uh, abdominal fat. So uh, obesity is causing testosterone deficiency. And because men put, up, put on weight as they grow older, it seems to be an age-related effect. But it's probably more related to obesity and the chronic diseases that are caused by obesity, such as type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular diseases. Now, testosterone is, is normally thought about as something that only men have, but women also have a certain level of testosterone as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, testosterone is a precursor of estradiol. So the, the female hormone um, derives from testosterone. So women first produce testosterone, which is then converted into estrogens. So women have, uh, testosterone is a, is a normal hormone for, for women to have. Now, what are the risks for men that have a testosterone deficiency syndrome? The risks are that they, um, they get into a sort of a vicious circle because uh, testosterone deficiency uh, leads to further increase of fat tissue because it's the testosterone that drives the calorie consumption, that drives um, psychological factors such as energy. Uh, the opposite would be fatigue. So men with low testosterone are very difficult to be motivated to do any kind of exercise. And um, then their testosterone level, level is low. They don't exercise. They um, accumulate more fat. It's, it's a typical vicious circle when it comes to this. Uh, we talk about the testosterone uh, hypogonadism. Hypogonadism is the technical term for testosterone deficiency. The, the, the low testosterone um, obesity cycle. The thing about taking testosterone as a, as a supplement once you've, you've actually been tested, I was going to ask you first, well, before we get to the, the, what happens to you once you take it, what testing is done? Is it a blood test? Yes, it is a blood test that has to be performed in the morning. Blood has to be drawn in the morning because testosterone underlies a circadian rhythm. It's highest in the morning, so it should be done between 7 a.m. and 10 to 11 a.m. And it's a simple blood test, and um, the laboratory will measure uh, total testosterone in the blood sample that has been taken. And then, of course, it is important that these men have symptoms because a testosterone deficiency alone is not sufficient for diagnosing testosterone deficiency 
deficiency syndrome. So there are certain symptoms of testosterone deficiency, and these symptoms primarily are of a sexual nature. At least that is what men notice and, and what bothers men. So it's um, erectile dysfunction, it is uh, lack of libido, it is the disappearance of uh, morning erections, which is a symptom which is uh, often forgotten, but a young man usually wakes, uh, wakes up with an erection, and uh, men with testosterone deficiency uh, often can't remember when they had the last, the last time a morning erection. So yes. these are some of the sexual symptoms. Then, of course, you have other psychological symptoms. I, I already mentioned fatigue, uh, the loss of energy, the feeling that uh, you can't perform at work and, and all these um, more psychological symptoms. So you have the blood test done and then obviously you would need to see a urologist preferably to be able to fully diagnose this. It's not something that men can just decide for themselves that they've got this problem. It needs to be properly diagnosed and properly treated. And once you are put on, if, if you are eligible to be put onto testosterone replacement therapy, there are, are a number of really good advantages that come out of that. Right, certainly. And these advantages are different in nature. I mean, the, the most important thing is to, to improve the symptoms that uh, were just mentioned. There are some symptoms that respond rather quickly, which is, uh, for instance, all these psychological and, sem uh, and sexual symptoms that may respond within uh, weeks to very few months. But then you have other long-term effects, which are uh, on the body composition, for instance. Men will improve their, um, their body shape. They will eventually even lose weight if they are treated for a sufficient period of time. That is something we have uh, researched and found uh, very recently. So this is, this is actually new. There are other symptoms that will improve, such as the metabolism will improve. There will be an improvement in, um, in insulin resistance, which is one of the early signs and, and one of the most important features of diabetes. And um, there will be improvements in bone mineral density, something you can't see, but if testosterone deficiency persists for a long period of time, men will eventually develop osteoporosis. And things like blood pressure, cholesterol, all of those could be, could be improved? All these symptoms or features of the so-called metabolic syndrome, which is the cluster of risk factors for cardio cardiovascular diseases and type 2 diabetes, and this is high blood pressure, it's, uh, uh, it's high um, triglycerides, which is one of the blood lipids, it's low HDL cholesterol, so it's the lipid profile, and it's insulin resistant, and it's abdominal obesity, which can be most easily measured by taking the waist circumference. Is something like this testosterone replacement therapy, is this something that men would have to then take for life or is it a limited period and then your body would be able to cope without it? Well, that is some, something that we don't fully understand. Endocrinologists used to say a testosterone deficiency needs to be treated for life. But since we have found this close relationship between obesity and testosterone deficiency, we think, and this, has, this is still a hypothesis because it has never been investigated in a, in a properly designed study, we think that if men uh, manage with the help of testosterone to lose weight, they may eventually uh, reach an ideal weight and no longer need testosterone because as, as the weight goes away, as the fat mass goes away, the man's own testosterone production may kick back in and he may have sufficient testosterone without being supplemented. I think a concern possibly is is that testosterone is sometimes aligned with aggression in men. And one would possibly be concerned that if men were taking additional testosterone, what about levels of aggression? Is that something that was seen in your research? No. This is now uh, very well accepted that um, uh, you can't um, induce 
aggressive behavior by um, putting a man on testosterone. What we do when we treat testosterone deficiency is uh, to take testosterone levels from a, a hypogonadal state, from a deficient state, back to a normal state. And uh, men with normal testosterone uh, do not develop aggressive behavior. On the contrary, if men have very low testosterone, they tend to become depressive, which in a, in a man... Um, often shows as grumpiness. So they are a little, um, let's say, um, uh, aggressive in their behavior, in their wording, and so on, because they're unhappy with themselves. So it's that, that, that sort of depression, depressive, aggressive behavior uh, that goes away with testosterone treatment. But it was never able in any study to actually provoke aggressivity, the, the negative form of aggressive behavior um, with testosterone treatment. Now, we mentioned in the beginning about the, the, what people are often in the past have been concerned about the link between testosterone and prostate cancer. And you've said that that is not something that we should be concerned about at the moment. Before a man considers um, testosterone treatment, any suspicion of prostate cancer needs to be ex excluded because an existing prostate cancer is a contraindication for testosterone. It may become worse and it may become aggravated by using testosterone. However, if a man doesn't have any signs of prostate cancer and that needs to be excluded before starting treatment, then there's a very, very uh, low uh, chance that there is any a connection between testosterone treatment and um, prostate cancer. The experts now agree that testosterone cannot induce prostate cancer and it's only the existing cancer that you need to be careful about. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those tests, if you like, that men tend to just ignore when they don't really want to go and have this test. And then they all got excited because there was the blood test. But how safe is it for men just to have that blood test? Should they not be having both the rectal exam and the blood test? Yes, if they want to be on the safe side, it's really a combination of the so-called prostate-specific antigen, the PSA test, and the digital rectal examination. It's just the thought. It's, it's a mm. perception thing. But um, you are perfectly right. PSA alone or digital rectal examination alone are not as safe as combining the two. And the incidence of prostate cancer are you finding in that that people are actually becoming more and more aware of this um, and it's being caught a lot earlier now or are we still sitting with a problem where it's not being picked up early enough? Unfortunately, even in, um, in very well advanced uh, countries, men are reluctant to take these tests. And that is a tragedy because uh, testosterone, uh, prostate cancer is a curable disease if detected early enough. And the problem is that prostate cancer for a long time can be silent without any symptoms. Usually if symptoms appear, it may already be too late. And that's why this test is so heavily and, and profoundly recommendable because just a matter of, of catching it at the, at, the, at the right time. And then it's curable. So it, just for negligence, people may die from prostate cancer because they have never bothered to take this test, which is, which is an easy thing to do. So it should be a routine thing to do. I think one of the big concerns that men have had in the past is that when, if they have, if they have to have an operation, um, if they have the prostate cancer to have it removed, that they could be left with an erectile dysfunction. Well, that may be some, maybe one of the side effects, not always uh, the prostatectomy, the, rem the removal of the prostate that is the only cure. There are other methods now like uh, brachytherapy where you insert uh, very little um, devices that provide local radiation. And uh, there are very nice um, new methods, but even radical prostatectomy does not necessarily lead to a permanent loss of, of erectile function. It's a matter of time and it will recover 
if these men are treated correctly. And early enough. And early enough. That is, the, the sooner the better. And uh, uh, there are even, um, if there is low-grade uh, cancer detected, there may even be the chance to not do any operation at all. The urologists are getting more comfortable with putting men who have been diagnosed with very low-grade, low-risk prostate cancer to put them on what they call watchful waiting. So um, there might be cancer, forms of cancer, um, and grades of cancer that don't, do not necessarily need treatment, that you just need to be aware of and um, that need to be monitored and, and uh, observed. Well, I don't think we can tell men that enough. We have to keep on telling them that and hopefully we'll get it through to them eventually. But Professor Saad, thank you very much indeed for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Professor Farid Saad is a world-renowned expert in men's health who's been involved over many years in large-scale clinical trials studying the effects of testosterone in males. And if you'd like to find out more about testosterone deficiency syndrome and prostate health, you can direct your emails to menshealth at oz.co.za. And oz is just O-Z. So quite simple, menshealth at oz.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, AFCON 2013 is in full swing, so to find out what's happening between Tunisia and Algeria at the Royal Bafokeng Stadium in Rustenburg. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, leprosy is now a rare disease in South Africa, but it does still occur, and it's an important cause of preventable disability. The World Health Organization considers eliminating leprosy as a public health problem when the target of one case of leprosy per 10,000 population is reached. And we've done that in South Africa, but that doesn't mean the problem has disappeared. Well, joining me on the line now is Peter Lopshin. He's the executive director of the Leprosy Mission in South Africa. Peter, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me on your program again, Corin. Well, I, I want to get into the whole story about where we are as far as this is, is going with leprosy, but you emailed me today to tell me that there was breaking news when it came to leprosy research. Do tell. Absolutely, yes. I'm thrilled to tell you that a few days ago, uh, a very important news was released from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland regarding research into leprosy and exactly how the organism works in the body. One of the great mysteries concerning leprosy for many years has been exactly how the disease, once it's entered the body, uh, is able to move from one part of the body to the other. And a lot of research has been going on in a number of places trying to understand this process. And at the University of Edinburgh, they've just discovered that what happens with the leprosy bacillus or the germ that causes leprosy is that it enters the fatty tissue that surrounds the peripheral nerves. Now, we've known this for many years. It's the, the major cause of disability in leprosy, the fact that the bacillus goes into the tissue surrounding the nerves. But what they've discovered in Edinburgh is that once the bacillus enters the tissue and uh, establishes itself in the, uh, the cells in the tissue surrounding the nerves, it converts those cells into stem cells. And I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with the fact that stem cell research mm. is a huge undertaking in the medical field at the moment. And so by converting these fatty cells into stem cells, basically it's turning back the switch in these cells and allowing the cells to become other uh, tissues within the body. And in this way, the leprosy bacillus is able to move around in the body undetected by the body's immune system, because obviously what the body sees are its own cells uh, moving around. This has huge implications because it will help the experts to understand better how leprosy works in the human uh, system. 
and hopefully lead ultimately to a way of detecting leprosy before it starts causing damage to the nervous system, which will be a fantastic breakthrough in leprosy work. But the other very exciting uh, aspect of this is that it's the first time that a bacillus has been linked to uh, converting body cells into stem cells. And what this will probably do is bring a lot more research to bear on this whole process. Of course, it's all very, very new news. But leprosy has tended to be somewhat neglected at times by the research fraternity. Many people see it as a disease of the past and so on. And uh, we're thrilled by this because it means that probably many, many more young and bright and talented uh, people are going to come into the field of leprosy research to understand how the whole uh, stem cell effect that it's having in the body could be used in other uh, the prevention of and treatment of other diseases, not just leprosy. So this is uh, probably one of the most significant breakthroughs in leprosy to occur probably in the past uh, 20 years. Wow. And, uh, really amazing, very, very exciting. Of course, it's still very, very new news, and people are still trying to digest it and make sense of it. Now, I mentioned that the World Health Organization considers eliminating leprosy as a public health problem when the target of one case of leprosy per 10,000 population is reached, and we've done that here in South Africa. How prevalent is this disease still in South Africa? Leprosy is at a very low level of prevalence in South Africa. It has been for many, many years. Uh, We achieved the WHO target uh, several decades ago. In fact, we achieved it many decades before the WHO set that uh, prevalence level as a target. So leprosy has always been a very low prevalence disease in South Africa, and there are many reasons for that. Uh, partly, uh, leprosy is very closely related to the standard of living within a community, and compared to many other countries where leprosy is a problem, the standard of living in South Africa is, of course, generally fairly high. And as the standard of living in South Africa has continued to improve in recent years, so the uh, prevalence of the disease has continued to decrease in conjunction, of course, with the availability of very effective medication. But uh, one of the things that we've learned from other countries is that even where medication is available, and it's available in all countries all around the world now, and has been for many years, even where the medication is available and is used, unless there's an improvement in the standard of living within the wider community, uh, leprosy is a very, very stubborn disease and continues to infect thousands and thousands of people. And of course, in South Africa, where our standard of living has gone up over the recent decades, the disease has been losing its foothold very steadily. So it's, it's a real success story, and I think a tribute to uh, health workers and to the general uh, improvement in the economy and uh, people's standard of living countrywide. Because it's spread very similarly, one would think, to tuberculosis, yep. for example. Sort of, It's a germ, it's in the, uh, in the air, it's coughing and sneezing on other people. That's how it's passed along. Absolutely. Tuberculosis and leprosy are very closely linked. They are sometimes considered cousins of each other. The germs that cause the two diseases, in fact, respond to similar medication. And uh, under the microscope, it look uh, fairly similar as well. And so, yes, most of what we know for the spread of uh, tuberculosis is true also for the spread of leprosy, poor housing, poor hygiene, and the people living in close uh, uh, close to each other and obviously sharing uh, you know, a very small living space. Uh, those are all ideal conditions for spreading both leprosy and tuberculosis. And uh, both respond, of course, very well to an improvement in the standard of living. And once people move into better housing, when their diets improve and so on, obviously both diseases start to drop away. And that's certainly true of leprosy worldwide. And the big thing that we need to get people to understand is that this is, if it's diagnosed early enough, it is curable. 
And leprosy has been curable since the 1940s. Many people don't realize that, but leprosy has been curable for a very, very long time. But sadly, because often of the, because of the stigma attached to the disease in many countries, people are reluctant to come forward for treatment. They're often ostracized and uh, people are, make life very difficult for them because of the disease. And so people will often hide the disease rather than come forward for treatment. Uh, leprosy treatment is not only very effective, it's also totally free of charge. And uh, we try to do everything we can to make sure that people who have the disease uh, can get the treatment free of charge and uh, be cured of the disease without any cost to themselves. Now, I said you were the executive director of the Leprosy Mission in South Africa. I'm almost sure, Peter, if I had to ask you, that you wouldn't mind being out of a job. Absolutely. <laughs> we're all around the world. That is the, the goal of the Leprosy Mission is to work towards the eradication of leprosy. That's our target. And in many countries, we have worked ourselves out of a job already there. A number of places where the leprosy mission used to have a very high presence where we no longer have a presence at all. And there are a number of countries where we used to have a, a significant number of people working and where we now just have maybe one or two people working in an advisory capacity because the numbers of leprosy patients have dropped so significantly. So, yes, that's very much our aim is to uh, work ourselves out of a job. Now, you've got World Leprosy Day coming up on Saturday. Correct, yes. What have you got on the what are on the cards for that day? What are you What are you planning? Is it very much just an awareness day? It's an awareness day, and uh, globally, the focus of World Leprosy Day this year is very much on the stigma issues. Stigma associated with leprosy, particularly in Asia, is a, a massive problem, and there's still a lot of legal restrictions in many Asian countries on people with leprosy, uh, particularly when it comes to marriage. In many communities, it's still uh, allowable to dismiss your spouse automatically once the diagnosis happens. Leprosy. So, leprosy organizations worldwide not only campaign for the effective treatment of leprosy, but we also campaign for the um, the revocation, I suppose one could say, of legislation which makes life so unbearable and terrible for people with leprosy. And sadly, many of these laws are still on the statute books of many communities around the world. I'm glad to say that in South Africa, Stigma is not really an issue. Uh, sometimes people may experience some stigma issues, but certainly there's nothing in legislation that uh, uh, prejudices people with leprosy in South Africa. And so stigma is not something that we worry about as much in our communities as uh, in, say, North Africa or in Asia. So what will, will we be doing here in South Africa? We're basically just promoting awareness of the disease. As you said earlier on, it's a rare disease, and it's often overlooked because of that. People aren't aware of the signs of leprosy. And sadly, sometimes people start treatment 12, 13, 14 years after the onset of the disease. And of course, by that stage, often irreparable damage has been done to their nervous system, and that can't be reversed uh, by treatment. So our focus is very much on making people aware that although it's a rare disease, it still occurs. Uh, it can be treated and treated very effectively if we find it in the early stages. The thing about your website as well, Peter, leprosymission.co.za, if people are interested in finding out more about leprosy and possibly about some of the signs of it, because you have photographs and pictures that people can have a look at that and lots of information, and it's all there really. And, and you very, I mean, all your contact details are there as well, and you are there for people to contact if they need help in Absolutely. any form. Absolutely, yes, uh, with great pleasure. We're open for business all the time, so if anybody has any concerns about leprosy, uh, they're very welcome to get in touch with us. What I should stress is 
that uh, leprosy generally doesn't occur at, at random. Uh, if, particularly within South Africa, most people who develop the disease somewhere along the line will have had a, a relative or family member somewhere who uh, has had leprosy in the past. So if someone does notice uh, a pale patch on their skin with diminished sensation or swelling in their face, and uh, particularly swelling of the ears and around the nose, and they know that there's been someone in the family with leprosy, it's perhaps wise that they get in touch with us and let us know, and uh, we will follow that up with them. And we certainly don't want to create alarm about leprosy. It, it is a rare disease, and uh, it's a very, very, very difficult disease to catch. But at the same time, we do want to make sure that those people who might be susceptible to it are uh, given the opportunity to start treatment at the earliest stage possible. Well, that's the whole point. You know, the yeah. sooner the better. So rather don't ignore yeah. it. It's not going don't to go away. Rather, uh, rather uh, be safe than sorry. And even if it, if it isn't leprosy and they thought it might have been, rather get it checked out. Absolutely, yes. Because it may well be another disease that can be uh, treated and managed very successfully. And there's absolutely no need to suffer in silence. Now, you mentioned that treatment is completely free. And I yes. saw on your website you do fundraising and uh, rather... A, I was quite amazed to see that the cost of curing somebody of leprosy is only five, I mean, it's only 5,000 rand, but I would have thought it would be a lot more than that. Hello? Peter? The oh, whole sorry. sequence of visiting patients at home, that can be quite an expensive thing. Many of our patients live in very deep, isolated rural communities. Our field workers will go out to visit them regularly um, and getting patients to clinics and so on. All those costs are involved. So, yes, those are all the, the very that uh, drive the cost of uh, leprosy treatment. And I'm absolutely thrilled to say the South African public are amazingly generous and we've had fantastic uh, backers and supporters over many years who've made it possible for us to provide free treatment for leprosy patients right around the country. Well, Peter, you are doing a wonderful job at the Leprosy Mission. I wish you, wish you continued success in the work that you do and I uh, hope you have a really good awareness day on Saturday. And this news, this uh, research news is wonderful news. So hopefully we'll catch up with you again in not too distant future to find out what's happening, if there's any new research going on in that regard. But thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening. Thank you for having me on your program. It's been a delight. Good night to you. Good night to you too. Thank you. Good night. Peter Lopesha is the Executive Director of the Leprosy Mission in South Africa. And if you'd like more information, you can take a look at their website. It's www.leprosymission.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, language-based learning disabilities are problems with age-appropriate reading, spelling, and or writing. Well, this disorder is not about how smart a person is. Most people diagnosed with learning disabilities have average to superior intelligence. Well, one thing to note, however, is that learning problems should be addressed as early as possible, as with most things. Many children with learning disabilities that are treated later when language demands are greater experience lowered self-esteem due to their previous academic frustrations and failures. Well, to tell us more about this, I'm joined now by by Professor Helia Jordan, Senior Lecturer at the University of the Vatvatistrand in Speech Pathology and Audiology. Professor Jordan, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hello. Yes, good evening. So I've, I've sort of rambled through an introduction there, but could you explain to us a little more clearly what exactly a language-based learning disability is? Yes. Um, it's a problem with, with learning language, as, as the name implies. And um, these children have a great deal of difficulty um, learning to read um, and some, some of them also have um, difficulties learning to, to use language, um, spoken language. 
Is this something, because I think a lot of people, when you talk about having problems with the, with the writing and the spelling and the reading, possibly think it could only be dyslexia, yeah. but it's, it's not just that, is it? No, it's not just, it's not just dyslexia. Um, it's, uh, and in fact, um, it's probably better to talk about um, language learning disabilities because of the relationship between spoken language and, and the written language. So ex- explain to that. How is it, first of all, how is something like that diagnosed? Um, well, um, the first thing that that would probably happen is that the child would have difficulty um, learning um, to read and and difficulty with a, with a written language. Um, they have difficulty expressing themselves. Um, they find um, you know they use um, non-specific vocabulary. Um, lots of non-fluencies in their speech, like um and you know ah oh, and that sort of thing. Have difficulty learning new words. Um, they don't understand questions, follow directions, um, learn sequences, understand stories, um, and so on. Um, and um, the, the uh, diagnosis is made by a team, usually consisting of a speech therapist, um, together with parents and um, teachers and special educators and educational psychologists and so on. So what is, what is parents' first move? What, what should they be doing? Because I know a lot of parents, when children are small, think, oh, well, they'll, they'll grow out of it. Yeah. I think that's always the one. They'll grow out of it or they'll, they'll learn to read it later or maybe they're just a late starter. Yeah, um, I think I think um, any any kind of spoken language difficulty or reading difficulty um, should be assessed just to make sure you know that that it's not um, something um, that is going to hold the child's academic progress back. Um, so I would see I would say um, you know rather rather have an assessment if the child is not. Um, reading well, um, like the rest of the, the peer group, or, or is, is slow in learning to speak. Now, what about their concentration? Because obviously, if, if they're not understanding or not being able to participate in a classroom, for example, their yeah. mind is going to wander off because they're going to be bored. Then they're probably going to be labelled as a troublemaker because they're going to be doing so. This poor child is a huge disadvantage from the start. Yeah, well, you see, they, it's a difficult situation because one doesn't know what comes first, whether their poor attention and memory and concentration actually affects their learning or whether it's the result of their not, not um, following what's going on in the classroom. But yes, there's a very close relationship between um, language learning disabilities and some of these con- so-called concentration problems and children who seem to be, um, you know, off task most of the time. Are teachers being educated into what to look out for? Because I think a lot of it should start in the classroom because they would be more... The teacher would be the first one to sort of identify the problem. Um, and yes, I think teachers are, are sort of um, trained to look out for these kinds of things. They don't perhaps always know what to do, but they do, they do um, identify these children. Have any causes been sort of found no, out? Nothing. It, it, there's, no, there's no real um, specific um, cause that has been identified, but what we do know is um, that these children, uh, or that the brain processes um, information differently um, and and it, you know it's not it's not as as, um, as simply processed as as um, in in, re- in the regular child is this something that if there was another child that had the same problem is this something that could potentially be hereditary yes it is yes there is a potential hereditary basis yeah and things sort of maternal health during pregnancy as we as we have mm. evidence by things like fetal alcohol syndrome obviously yeah. i mean things like that would that also affect yeah. the child in Birth this way complications minor brain injuries 
And then, of course, in South Africa, we have this major environmental um, impact, you know, the, the effects of poor nutrition in early development um, and so on. So there's quite a number of things that could cause yes, this. How yes. prevalent is this problem? Approximately 10 to about 30% of children. That's quite high. Yeah, it can be very high. Gosh, and what about treatment, Prof? I mean, is there effective treatment? I mean, if if a parent, for example, is listening to this now and thinking, well, my child is like that, Mm. is there any hope in the future? What what is the prognosis here? Yes, the prognosis is good. Um, you know, the, as, as soon as these children are identified and they're worked with, or they, some, some of them can be uh, worked with in mainstream education with the assistance of, of um, speech therapists and, and educational professionals in the classroom, um, and others would, would benefit from um, education in a sort of more um, specialized environment, like a remedial educational environment. But overall, um, it, it can be worked on, and, and with assistance, these children can really do, a, do well. Now, I mentioned that you are a lecturer in speech pathology and audiology. Could you explain exactly what the role of a speech pathologist in a situation like this? Yeah, a very, very integral role um, as a member of a, of a team. Um, she would um, do, do the assessments and then um, provide the, the um, intervention. And um, it would be aimed specific, specifically at improving the child's language in terms of understanding language, developing better vocabulary, um, learning you know, how, to, how to read and, or improving reading. Um, the idea here, here is that an individualized program needs to be um, instituted based on the child's specific needs. Um, and often the, the speech therapist would work with the child in the classroom and base all the work that she does on the on the child's learning needs in the classroom. In other words, in in terms of what the language um, requirements are in the classroom, in terms of textbooks and reading activities and so on. So they they would be almost like an assistant in the classroom with that child all the with time. With the child, yeah. How how are these teams then set up? Because obviously you'd need to approach the school if parents are sort of wanting to put a team like this together. First yes. of all, who would be in the team, and how would they go about? getting the school to agree to have this in the, happening in the classroom at the same time as the teacher is teaching. Yeah, it, I think a lot of it depends very much on, on the, the sort of um, uh, attitudes of the, of the um, school in, in terms of whether they're willing to have people um, come into the school either as, as um, private um, sort of consultants or um, be, being paid by the school to, to do the work. And this is something that could be done in primary school as well as in high school, or is this something yes, that? Yes, you know, there's there's um there's a lot of there's a great need for it in high school because, um, as you as you mentioned previously, these children tend not to outgrow the difficulty as mm. easily. Um, so while they improve a lot, there there may be persistent difficulties, and we find that there's a great need for this kind of support service in in the high schools where these children are having difficulty um, with higher levels of of linguistic processing, language processing, um, in very difficult with difficult material that they and conceptual material that they cover in the various subjects. So some of them really tend to fall behind more in high school without the support. So I would agree that that it 
could happen both in preschool, primary school and in high school. Now, as I mentioned at the very beginning, that this disorder is not about how smart a person is no, because that's one of the possible stigmas that the child would have to put up with at the same time. You know, if they're yeah. not coping with these very basic things, yeah. could possibly be labelled as somebody who isn't very smart. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a, you know, people get confused between intelligence and the type of processing that the child is doing. It's just that these children process differently. Um, and, and if you can um, provide support and, and, and structure for them to, um, to process the way, in the way in which they, they learn better, then they can, they can do well. Um, but it certainly, it certainly isn't a, a strong relationship with, um, with IQ. And in fact, some of these children are very, very bright. There is, there is however, a difference between verbal and nonverbal um, learning disabilities. So some of these children have low verbal IQs um, because their language skills are, are impaired, whereas some of them have more impairments in their nonverbal skills, um, like um, um, visual processing and um, memory, um, more right hemisphere, right hemisphere of the brain type functions. So there's quite a lot out there. I mean, there's a lot that parents possibly would need to find out. And yeah. um, the speech a, a language... Good, a good assessment on a, on a child who's having difficulty learning at school is, is often the starting point. And w would they find that uh, the Speech Language Hearing Association website, would that have a list of people to contact? Yes, and the speech therapists are often a good point of, of contact, you know, to initiate further assessments by other members of the team. But of course there are educational psychologists and um, people who can do these assessments as well. So there is a lot of help out there oh, yes. and all oh, is yes. not lost. Very much. Do not give up hope if you are, are worrying no. about your child. There, no. is, there is hope out there for them and they can be assisted. Definitely. And for all those who possibly know somebody who has a child like this, as I said, please do remember that this is not an indication of how smart a person is. As Professor Yordan says, some of those children are highly intelligent. So bear that in mind. I think it's always very important not to label people. So, exactly. Professor Yordan, I'm really grateful for your time this evening and thank you very much indeed for joining me on the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having Good me. Good night to you. Okay. Professor Helio Yordan is a senior lecturer at the University of the Vatvatistrant in speech pathology and audiology. For more information, you can contact the South African Speech Language Hearing Association on 0861-113-297, or take a look at their website. It's www.saslha.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, it's time to find out again what's happening in the match between Nigeria and Burkina Faso at the Mbombela Stadium. Oh, no, I've got the wrong date, so I'm so sorry. We're at uh, Tunisia um, at uh, the Royal Buffer King Stadium. I'm looking at the wrong page. Well, members of South Africans Against Drunk Driving, or SAD, were recently in London to receive the Prince Michael of Kent International Road Safety Award. It's quite an accolade, I must say. Well, Charlotte Sullivan, fundraiser and a director of SAD, is on the line. Charlotte, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening. Thank you for having me on the show. And first of all, congratulations. What an amazing award. Thank you very much. Yes, I must say it's uh, been the culmination of uh, lots of hard work for SAD. And, uh, yeah, we, we were absolutely thrilled. So why, first I have to ask, what was the award for? What, what did you do? Um, it's for a project that uh, we've been running um, in eight South African universities um, for the last uh, just over four years. It's a project that is uh, sponsored by SAB, South African Breweries, um, and it is basically about teaching responsible alcohol use to 
see young people. Um, you know, SAD is not anti-alcohol. We, whilst we appreciate there are a lot of people that don't drink, we also know that young people do drink. Um, and we believe that it's very important to educate young people that if they are going to drink, to drink responsibly. So how did they get to hear about you? Did you actually have, apply to enter this, this competition or did they hear about the work that you were doing? Um, look, we obviously work um, closely with a lot of other international uh, organisations, NGOs, you know, road safety NGOs, um, and um, we were approached a, a couple of years ago when we started the project and uh, someone suggested to us that uh, we submit the project, which we duly did. Uh, we didn't hear back from them. They then came back and asked us for some further information and, and updates on the project. Um, and then um, there were, I believe, last year uh, 40 nominations uh, for the international awards, and we were one of only five to receive one. Wow, it makes it even that much more special there. But what an occasion to have gone over to receive this from Prince Michael himself. I think that was, was really significant for, for Caro and myself, um, because Prince Michael is uh, very involved in road safety, um, not just in the UK, but also globally. Um, he's quite passionate about road safety. Um, and to be at an event with three or 400 other like-minded people who are also doing similar things uh, to what we're doing. Nice to know you're not alone out there in this fight against drink driving. Uh, very much so. Although, I mean, I, I think uh, it was quite interesting. I, I sat at the table with a number of people um, from Scotland um, and I have to say, when I told them our drink driving and road crash statistics, they were absolutely bowled over. Um, they, they actually couldn't believe what is, is happening on our roads here in South Africa. It is rather scary. But and on a, a more positive note, well, no, that, that was positive enough as it was. But, I mean, following on from that, February is coming up. And I think we've, been, we've known about this for a couple of years now. We have Elko Free Feb. So yes, tell us about I mean, that. This has been a campaign uh, we started a couple of years ago, following on from uh, something that has become huge in Australia called Feb Fast, and I think many countries are running it now. Um, and it, it's part of, of what we do at SAD is, you know, creating awareness and, and saying to people, you know, you don't need to stop drinking, but you need to be aware. You know, maybe you are drinking too much, maybe somebody in your family is, or maybe you just need to sit back and think about the harm that alcohol is doing to this country. And, it, and it's doing huge damage to, to South Africa. I, I really like your slogan that you have for Elko Free Fair, but send your liver on holiday. Yes, well, I think <laughs> maybe after the festive season yes. that, uh, that applies to a few people. Now, this is also, besides get, hope, hope, hopefully getting a number of people to recognize possibly if there's a problem with themselves or with the fa in, in, within their families, it's also a fundraising month for SAD. Very much so, yes. We, we do rely on this. As, it's one of our, our bigger fundraisers um, because, I mean, we are just seeing more and more pressure on us to provide services to people um, and often, you know, we can't provide the services we want because we don't have the funding. So uh, we really would like people to come on board, particularly companies to come on board, um, you know, for the MD or the CEO to sign up and then challenge all his staff to join. Because if, if companies are going to get involved, you will actually go out there and give them a free alcohol and road safety manual plus a DVD if they've signed up for this Elko Free Feb campaign. Absolutely. That is that is our commitment to everybody that, that signs up. 
um, and uh, yeah, a, a very useful teaching tool. You know, the manual is. We've uh, distributed thousands of them to uh, schools throughout South Africa. And if anyone's listening and thinking, well, I wouldn't have minded, but you know, a whole month is a bit long. You have lots of other options. I mean, there's the ten day challenge, and I know that if you, you if you want to have a day off, you just pay a little fine, and all. So there's a number of options, and it could actually turn out to be quite a fun competition amongst friends. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think you could make uh, join groups. Um, there are so many options. I mean, everything from make a donation, carry on drinking, uh, the 10-day challenge, or sign up for the whole month, and then if you're suddenly invited out, you buy a special pass for the night. So uh, I think there's an option there for everybody. And all this information, Charlotte, is on the elcofreefeb.co.za website. Correct, and you can sign up um, on, on the website as well. And just looking back as the more depressing side of all of this is that we've had a pretty bad holiday season. The festive season, the numbers are on our roads, the death toll has been relatively high. Um, I think appalling is, is the only word that, that I could use. But um, the other thing that one needs to remember is that people drink, then drive, 365 mm. days of the year. Um, you know, we, we see um, uh, terrible statistics over Christmas but one of the reasons is obviously there are just a lot more people on the road. Um, but um, on a daily basis, we are losing 40 people. And of those 40, you know, 60% of our crashes have an alcohol component. So either the driver is drunk or the pedestrian is drunk or, or both. So, um, you know, we, we, we need to sort of have a little bit of a mindset change. It's not just Christmas. It's not just Easter. We in this country have a problem with, with drink driving every single day of the year. And uh, the police and uh, traffic police are not going to just be out at the festive season. So if you want to take a chance and go to jail, well, preferably you didn't drink at all. But, you know, if you're going to do it, just know that you could get yourself locked up. But you also could take a life, be it yours or somebody else's. So think about that next time you get behind the wheel of a car when you've been drinking. Rather get one of those wonderful companies that will come and fetch you or take you home or drive your car home. Or There's so many options to keep yourself and everybody else safe out there. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think your, your point um, is you really need to think about the effect of, of drink driving. We deal on a daily basis with families who've left, been left absolutely devastated. They cannot move on with their lives because they have lost a family member. It, it, it's the most dreadful, dreadful crime, and, and uh, it's a violent crime. And I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people don't see it as a violent crime, but, you know, drink driving is no different to taking out a gun and shooting somebody. And it's um, a very selfish thing to do. Absolutely. Charlotte, and, and there's no excuse for it. No. Charlotte, I'm afraid our time has run out, but it's been really nice to speak to you. And uh, I wish you much success in the future with all, hopefully lots more awards. So thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Charlotte Sullivan is the fundraiser and a director of SAD. And if you'd like to find out more about the work that they do, or if you'd like to find out how to sign up for Elco Free Feb, you can take a look at www.elcofreefeb.co.za or the SAD website is www.sad.org.za. Well, that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Kyron Key. Thanks for joining me. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening, just after nine, with time to travel. So join me then. If you need any information about something you've heard this evening, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. Stephen Kirk is up next a little late. Sorry about that, Stephen, with some nighttime music.